After a bit of a delay, senators are heading back to Jefferson City next week to continue their special session on abortion. The main sponsor of the bill at hand is Senator Andrew Koenig of Manchester. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking to break down his bill. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only podcast about Missouri politics featuring a host that spent the weekend gallivanting around (laughs) Reynolds County. I am that co-host who spent the weekend (laughs) gallivanting around Reynolds County. Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, joining me in studio today is Joe Manis. And a our special guest, who I'm not sure has ever been to Reynolds County before. Have you, first of I all? I bet he has. I, I probably have. Probably have. And our guest today is? Andrew Koenig. Uh, a senator, a Republican senator from? The 15th District. 15th, yeah, 15th District. Before we get to any hard-hitting issues, just remind our listeners what the 15th District encompasses. So it goes from Wildwood all the way out to Glendale. It encompasses a lot of Kirkwood. It goes south until you hit 55 and everything until you hit Jefferson County. And you live in Manchester? I do, yes. Manchester. Uh, my uh, One of my uncles used to live in Manchester, so I actually spent quite a bit of time as a child in that great St. Louis County city. Yeah, and he is, yeah, he's a busy businessman. And you also are married and have five children. That's right. I have five kids. We do foster care. Um, two of our five kids are foster kids, and we have three biological kids. And when I talked with you over the phone recently, you were actually at the end of a roofing job. So I think that while, while some people may think that politicians are spending the summer not doing very much, you are actually in your busiest season as, as I think, a a, a roofer and a painter company. Basically. Yeah, yeah. We I do roofing and painting, and in the month of June and May, I was completely swamped. I was probably working about eighty hours a week. After session ended what, on yeah. May twelfth. Yeah. Right. So we we're very appreciative of the senator coming and being on our show because next week the legislature is scheduled to come back, and specifically the Missouri Senate. Yes, um, and for a special session after they've been off for several weeks for various for various reasons. This is the special session that is. Uh, on the abortion issue, and the bill got crafted several weeks ago, but there's been lots of maneuvering, and then frankly, uh, because the legislators have other jobs, like Senator Koenig, many of them had other jobs or family vacations or other things, and so they couldn't get back until this week. Now, one of the reasons we wanted Senator Koenig is because Senator Koenig ended up, his bill, his abortion bill, has ended up being the vehicle that is being moved back and forth between the chambers and the one that's likely to end up on the governor's desk in some form. So he's very gracious to be here. It really uh, will be helpful for our listeners. Now, before we talk about any general uh, maneuvers and and machinations, we want to go through the bill in question about each aspect of it, because it's it's multifaceted. And I think that there are some provisions of it which could be impactful for, for years going forward. So Let's walk through the different components um, one by one. 
and you could you could start sure. with whatever one you want. Yeah, before I go into that, um, I'd like to state something about my pro-life or why I'm pro-life. Okay. Sure. Um, I, um, so there's, there's three differences between a baby inside the womb and one outside. One is location, two is level of development, and three is level of dependency. And none of those three things determine whether or not you're a human being. You know, if you if you live in Kansas City, if you're inside the womb, outside the womb, if you live in St. Louis, that does not determine whether or not you're a human being. Level of development, if that determined whether or not you're a human being, then someone who is five would be less human than someone who's 25. Clearly, this isn't the case. Um, level of dependency, um, if that determined your, whether or not you're a human being, then if you had a pacemaker, you'd be less human than someone who wasn't. So clearly, these things are not the case. Um, I also have a quote here from an embryology book, so something that they actually teach um, in universities. And it says, although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct uh, human organism is thereby formed. The combination of 23 chromosomes present in each pronucleus results in 46 chromosomes in the zygote. Um, so, you know, what they're teaching in textbooks um, in, in universities is that life does begin at conception. Okay, so with that, um, you want to explain then some of the provisions of the sure. bill as it now stands. And thank you for your um, comments. So um, my original bill was actually just a one-page bill. Um, it was uh, dealing with the AG language. All it did is allow our attorney general to enforce our abortion laws. Um, and they actually, there are actually other five other states that don't have that specific language with the abortion, but they do give the attorney general um, broad jurisdiction to enforce, um, you know, basically any law in the state. Yeah, and just so our listeners, so they understand, um, basically what this set, the impact would be, let's say in St. Louis County, um, let's say Bob McCullough decides not to um, go after an abortion clinic on something. Not There isn't one in St. Louis County, so this is all... Hypothetical. Hypothetical. So, but it's just kind of, I mean, just suppose, and for some reason, uh, there's deciding not to go forward on something. With this provision, the attorney general could step in and say, well, if you're not going to enforce this, I am. Am I correct? Correct. It gives them concurrent original jurisdiction, um, and it wouldn't force the attorney general to do it. It'd be only if they chose to. Right. So, but it would not stop a, a local prosecutor from bringing charges. It'd just be if they, for some reason, don't, the right. attorney general could. Or if they determine there isn't, let's say, in the city, yeah, where there is an abortion clinic, maybe Kim, yeah, Gardner, they decide that, no, we don't see a violation, but the attorney general may disagree, and the attorney general could step in. Now, Correct. Now, one of the reasons why I mentioned on the outset about long-term consequences is I could foresee a situation where there's an attorney general who's a Democrat, who supports abortion rights, who's going to see a provision like that and never use it. That's that's true. My, my question Correct. is, I understand that maybe this is being put forth because Attorney General Josh Hawley, who's a Republican, is there now, at least for now. We'll, we'll get into that another time. Right. But it, it, could this end up backfiring on people who don't support abortion rights if there's an attorney general that supports abortion rights that doesn't use this very often? Well, I think if you get, um, you know, a pro-choice attorney general, it just might not get used. Um, it's not getting used now because they don't have the authority. 
Okay. And you know, there, there's several other areas in law where they have um, concurrent original jurisdiction um, uh, in, currently in law. We actually did that with right to work this year. So this is actually, the, this would be the second law this year giving them original concurrent jurisdiction. So the attorney general and the right to work thing could go after businesses or unions if they feel they're violating the right to work law? Correct. Okay. So that was the that was actually your standalone bill, and then a lot of other provisions got added to it. I I don't really want to confuse our listeners and talk about like what got passed in the Senate and what got passed in the House. I really want to know what's in what's, it now, what's in it yeah, now what's and, in and it now. what the House put in. So sure. let, let's go through each one of them. So you have uh, the abortion sanctuary city, which was uh, pretty much in every version um, except for my original version. And, you know, there's been some misconception about that piece. Um, you know, the, the, the law itself does not deal with birth control specifically. It only deals with alternatives to abortion agencies. Um, and I can actually read. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So um, 188.125, it says it is the intent of the General Assembly to acknowledge the right of an alternatives to abortion agency to operate freely and engage in speech without government interference as protected by the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Missouri, the right of a person not to be compelled by the government to participate in an abortion contrary to his or her religious belief. So this notion that someone can be fired um, just for taking birth control is false and is not something that's in the bill. Okay. When, and I talked with you about this, I think about one or two weeks ago, because I had read the language too, and there had been some articles, including ones that you are alluding to from like Jezebel and some people that don't support what you're doing, saying that, you know, the the General Assembly is about to make it legal for someone to be fired for taking birth control with the idea that the what you all are doing is overturning the entire St. Louis City Ordinance. Now, I want you to make it clear, you're not overturning the entire ordinance, you're just preempting it in very specific circumstances. That's correct. And, you know, the, the reason why is because if you're a pro-life organization and you're forced to hire someone who might be pro-choice, then you, you can fail, you'll fail to exist as an organization to actually meet your goals. My understanding from reading the ordinance is it, it's somebody who had an abortion or takes contraception, not necessarily someone who believes in those things. Have you heard that argument too, that there are two different things there? Or is, is it to you like a distinction without a difference? I haven't actually, m most people are talking about the birth control thing that like as far as emails and phone calls I've been getting. Well, it depends. I mean, I think that some of it depends because uh, on some types of birth control, wouldn't that be part of it? Because there are some, uh, uh, abortion opponents who do oppose certain types that they feel are actually abortifacient. I guess what I'm trying to get at is if, if there's a, somebody who wants to be hired by a pregnancy resource center and they take birth control or have had an abortion and they believe in that strongly, I could see a conflict with the pregnancy resource center wanting to hire them. Sure. Um, so in essence, though, because it's only carving out in certain situations, if you're a business that is not a pregnancy resource center and you're not religiously affiliated and you fire somebody because they've had an abortion or taking birth control, the St. Louis City Ordinance, under your opinion, would still be able to find them or potentially throw them in jail. Is correct. that correct? That's correct. Um, okay. And Good clarification. I think that's an important clarification here um, because that's what the governor's office has said. And frankly, that's what 
uh, Alder woman Megan Green has interpreted as well. In her opinion, she feels that the ordinance already carves out pregnancy resource centers since many of them are already religiously affiliated. Uh, how do you disagree with that interpretation? I, I would say most of them probably are, but to say that every um, alternative to abortion organization is a religious organization is not necessarily true. Okay, so if you were to tell somebody uh, in a sentence or two exactly what that does as far as the um, provision that deals with the city of St. Louis, I mean, because we've been talking about it, but if you were to lay this out in a sentence or two, how would you do that? It would protect alternative to abortion ag agencies to hire people that are consistent with their beliefs. And um, the other aspect of it is a, a landlord could not be forced to rent to an abortion clinic. Too. Correct. So there's that aspect as well. So that one has gotten a lot of attention, but there are other aspects that deal with inspections. Yeah, and I actually also think some things. of the I think some of the other provisions are actually probably uh, more major points than okay. that provision because that provision is a, is kind of relatively small. It might even get thrown out in the courts. Really? Why do you think that? That piece because those. Um, organizations have freedom of speech. Oh, what you're saying is the St. Louis ordinance Correct. might get thrown out in court. Okay. I yes. thought that you were saying that the bill that you're passing oh, could no. be thrown out in court. <laughs> I'm like, that's a startling admission right there. <laughs> what, what, what the senator is referring to is the ordinance is being legally challenged Correct. right now. But continue on the other provisions. So um, we have uh, annual inspections that will be in there. Um, there's annual unannounced, correct? Un correct. Annual unannounced inspections. Um, another provision is we currently we have in law a 72 hour waiting period. And what this would do is it would require the doctor to do that informed consent um, rather than, you know, a social worker or a nurse or someone else. Um, and, you know, we actually that was actually the case before 2010, I believe, when um, in some kind of compromise on a pro-life bill, it actually got changed where the doctor didn't have to do an informed consent. Um, the pathology reports when the st um, when the state has to receive these pathology reports after an abortion, and there were many reports showing that there was no abortion taking place. Um, so we put in a provision where if there's no evidence of the products of conception, then you would have to have a microscopic um, view to see, you know, what happened. I mean, if you had your gallbladder removed and there was no evidence of gallbladder removed, you know, that's a serious problem that patient, you know, something went wrong or maybe the wrong sample was sent in. So would that mean they would have to do some internal um I guess investigation. I mean, internal yeah, so, probes so, or that so sort right, of thing. So right now, they only do a gross um, analysis from the pathologist, um, and it, you know, it's seven dollars. Um, I believe by doing a microscopic, um, it'd be like another twelve. Um, so basically, if they do a gross analysis and there's no products of conception, they'd have to do that microscopic um, analysis. Okay. Now, one quick clarification about the doctor's part. So on the seventy-two hour. Um, Waiting period. So the doctor would have to be there for that first visit is, is basically what we're saying. Correct. Okay. I mean, you know, when you have many, when you have any kind of surgery, I actually just recently had um, sinus, uh, balloon sinus surgery. And, uh, you know, I met with the doctor several days prior to the surgery. Um, so, I mean, that's a common practice. You don't have a social worker doing informed consent. I mean, on almost any surgery I've seen, um, it's always the doctor. So okay. I think that's something that makes sense. Okay, go ahead. Um, we ha um, also with the uh, RU for chemical abortions, RU forty eight six. They have to have um, a complication plan 
um, if if the drug something that's approved by FDA if there's if there's a complication or surgical surgical intervention if the drug is over one over one percent of cases um, with RU486 I believe um, you know on average it's over five percent where they have to require surgical intervention after taking the drug um, when doing an abortion um, let's see I think those are most of the major provisions. Now, isn't yeah. there something, I know the governor had talked about this too when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, about ambulances? Yeah, so what you had, you had Planned Parenthood. Um, they would tell when the ambulances to turn their lights off or to try to um, not make a lot of noise because they didn't want to draw attention to it. Um, and you know, the key is, is that the safest way to transport someone who might be um, bleeding or have some kind of major um, issue with themselves when they're going to the hospital, I think it's better for that not to happen because the idea is, to, is the health and safety of that woman. And that's in the bill, correct? Yes. Now, the question that I would have would, would be, is there any concern that turning the ambulance light on, especially when there's a lot of demonstrators around the clinic, could potentially cause a confrontation? Well, I, I, I think the key is... Um, is is what Planned Parenthood is telling the hospital. If if the ambulance thinks it's the best way to do it, then that's fine. Um, but the key is, you know, having you know taking orders from Planned Parenthood in such a way that could um, jeopardize the health and safety of the mother. So it would ha so in other words, if the hospital ordered it, it they could still go right, without correct. sound. Okay. Okay, that's a good clarification to have. So with that as a backdrop, I I want to just know generally like. I know from talking with a lot of legislators and knowing the composition of the legislature and also just traveling around Missouri, I think that restricting abortion has a lot of popular support in the state. But there's also a lot of passionate opposition to what you're doing, especially among people who believe it's no business of the state to be micromanaging this very often difficult decision for women. I'd like you to explain why you think this is worth the legislature's time and to respond to kind of the people that are saying you shouldn't be doing this. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the reality is, um, you know, in the medical field, we we regulate these things all the time. They're very heavily regulated. Um, you know, what we're doing is we're putting a lot of this stuff in the bill is common medical practice. Like I said, I just had surgery. I met with the doctor prior to the surgery several days beforehand. Um, if you have a pathology report done, if you have your gallbladder removed, right they're they're going to send it to a pathologist and they're going to confirm that the whole gallbladder was actually removed um the what we're doing we're putting in here is common sense uh health and safety measures that already exist in the medical field today now from from my understanding when i read it at least the latest version there are none of the provisions that deal with what the judge tossed out. Am I correct? Yeah. So what we yeah the, the other provision that we didn't actually talk about is the department regulation. Um, the the last year the Supreme Court threw out and said you couldn't regulate um, an abortion facility as an ambulatorial surgical center. So what we did in this bill is we separated that out. So we regulate an abortion facility separately from an ambulatorial surgical center. Now, might that, I mean, some say, well, that in itself may end up being a court fight. Are you prepared for that? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. What it does is it allows the department to set up these regulations. So, I mean, I guess theoretically, the department could put up something that might, might be too onerous, um, but then they could also change it too. 
for, for a little context, and I've mentioned this context on the show before, uh, there was a law passed in 2007 requiring abortion clinics to have ambulatory surgical standards. St. Louis already had them. Columbia did not. There was a lengthy court case over this where the settlement ended up being that Columbia did a lot of construction to comply with the standards. What ended up happening was the doctor that performed the abortions, I think, left for some reason. I don't think that they were replaced for a long time. And then the issue became like where the doctor is has hospital admitting privileges. Yeah, which is yeah. a whole separate thing, right. but which now, because of the Supreme Court ruling, is not yes. in this bill. I mean, just so people know, the debate which has gone on, well, the state of Missouri had restrictions on admitting privileges for a long time. I mean, we're talking decades. Right. And then, and that, and the Supreme, the state, the U.S. Supreme Court decision, which tossed out a similar Texas law and which judges have ruled does apply to Missouri as well, basically knocks that out. So the state can no longer say you have to have admitting privileges within, within five thir- miles yeah. or right. 30 miles or. And I think Whatever. that the practical result of this is you may see Planned Parenthood open up clinics, I think, in Joplin, yes. Springfield, other places. Kansas right. City. Kansas City. Yeah, because well. right now, just so I did a thing on this about six weeks ago. Um, right now, the Kansas City area clinic is actually on the Kansas side mm-hmm. of the border. And what this may happen is that they may either move it or add to it and put it on this. Missouri side. So do you feel like anything that's being done in this bill is going to stop Planned Parenthood from being able to open more clinics? Well, I mean, it dep- I think it's likely to stop if they're going to have their doctors that are in St. Louis travel, let's say, to Columbia or to, or to Springfield. Um, you know, the 72-hour waiting period, the regulations, the RU486 um, could could um, stop them from opening up, you know, clinics unless they get other doctors to do the abortions. Okay. And is there any worry, though, that that could go over the undue burden standard that often is used when challenging this? Well, I mean, I think I think if you look at in the medical field, it's not necessarily a common practice. Like any surgery, I've I haven't had too many surgeries, but uh, most doctors I know aren't traveling, you know, across the state to multiple cities, um, you know, to do surgeries. You know, the the guy that did the surgery in my my sinuses, I mean, he doesn't leave St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, but but in, in in the case of abortion, just so our listeners know, I've been covering this off and on for a long time, several decades. But even in the '90s, I mean, Missouri had the had the instances where you had physicians who were traveling across the state. There was one physician in particular at the time who lived in Kansas who actually did most of the abortions in the state and flew over here. Appreciate that context. Now, into the machinations of the bill. I saw, I I look at Twitter all the time and not just for for, for professional wrestling results. You stated, and I'm paraphrasing, that you're you're going to try to pass the House bill as is. You are not going to try to send it to conference. Explain what that means to people and why it's important. So when you send it to conference, what they do is they get five members from the House, five members of the Senate appointed by the Speaker pro tem or the Speaker of the House. And what they do is um, they meet together to try to work out a compromise in the differences between the House and Senate. Then after that, after they get a certain number of signatures on that, then it would have to be voted out of both chambers again. Now, are there particular provisions that you think might might be problematic if it went to conference? Or do you think you have the votes in the Senate just to pass this bill as amended by the House as is? I believe we have the votes to pass it as is. Um, and there's, you know, there was a lot of members of our caucus that want to pass it as is. And, um, you know, the problem is the House has already said that they're going to reject 
going to conference. So if we if we were to make the motion to go to conference, we'd be bringing 163 members back to basically say no. Yeah. Um, also, you have you know the governor wants it passed as is also. And that is true. I actually talked with the governor yesterday, and he said he would prefer the Senate pass the House bill. Continue, Joe. So at this point, so do you see? Uh, the threat of a filibuster. I've heard talk that, well, the Democrats might start one, but that the Senate Republican leadership is prepared to PQ, which is a which is a maneuver to end debate. What, what's your feeling about what may or may not happen at this point? Um, yeah, I see. I believe, and that's the other thing, is I believe some of the opponents of the bill might filibuster it no matter what happens. And um, so if it's going to end up in a PQ no matter what, then we might as well pass the bill that we want. That's that seems to be the news here. Um, I guess kind of to close this issue, you know, I think that even some Republicans were, were questioning, not all Republicans, but there were several of your colleagues grumbling, like, why do we need a special session for this? Why couldn't we have just passed this during regular session? Do you feel like this whole process has been worth it, given that it's taken a lot longer than a lot of people expected? Yeah, I mean, it's taken a lot longer. There's no question, but there's reasons for that. Um, and you know, the main reason is trying to get everybody when we can meet. Um, you know, people are, are out working their jobs, and you know, like Senator Krause, he was on military duty. So you know, trying to get everybody back um, where we can actually work on the issue um, is why one reason why it's taken so long. Now, do you have any thought? I know there was the first special session, which I wrote about last week, kind of what the fallout was. That was on economic issues. Do you think there will be any more? And uh, or, or do you think that maybe this whole experience this summer will prompt the governor and maybe others to pay more attention about what's going on during the session? Yeah, I think I think uh, many members of the legislature are uh, kind of uh, their patience is running out with these special sessions. Um, so I think if it continues, not only there it might cause uh, issues with the budget as far I, on the House side. I don't know how much money they have to be running these special sessions. Um, on the Senate side, there's only 34 of us, so it doesn't cost nearly as much. Um, but I think the I think there's a chance that if it continues that we might just gavel and gavel out. Um, I think the patients will be running out. Really? So if the governor calls you back for, let's say, tax credits, which is an issue I know that you care <laughs> deeply about, the legislature just say, nope, we're not doing this. I, I think that I think there's a high possibility that that could happen, depending on the timing of it. I mean, if he called it during veto session, that, that would probably, we're all up there anyways. Um, so it, it might that might not happen. But if he turned around, you know, let's say let's say this ended on July 25th and he called us back in the next week, um, I would not be surprised if that happened. And you already lived through a special session on, on tax credits that did not go very well. And I don't think there's the consensus to do that. But that's just another thing. I did want to talk about a couple of things that have been in the news lately. Yesterday, Governor uh, Greitens signed an executive order setting up a prescription drug monitoring program. And the key here is this is a monitoring program that the state can see. Doctors and, and pharmacists do not have access to it. Um, there's, there's some things within the executive order that talk about confidentiality of this data. 
Um, I know that that had been the big sticking point for a lot of conservative legislators like you, that you there was a discomfort about all this patient data being in a centralized database. I know that there has also been some Republicans and Democrats who are leery of this being set up through an executive order. With that as a backdrop, what is your take on the situation? You know, the, you know, the thing about th um, this policy sp specifically is we haven't actually seen the regulations exactly. I and mean, we have the executive order, which is fairly broad. Um, if he's going to use this executive order to, um, you know, through the licensing process to, you know, if you have a doctor who's over-prescribing opioids and they're just a general practitioner versus, oh, this guy's a surgeon, so of course he's going to be prescribing opioids. Um, if they're going to use it to put pressure on some doctors maybe or educate doctors to maybe not use opioids, you know, maybe there's some merit there. Um, but, you know, tracking individual data of individual patients is something that I can't be for. So do you have any misgivings about him setting this up via executive order as opposed to legislation? Um, I, it depends on what exactly he's trying to do and what the law allows him to do. Um, it, you know, like I said, if it was, if it was more that first part, um, I think um, you know, there is uh, the authority for him to do something there in the department. Um, I think when it comes to tracking individuals, I don't think the, the law would give him authority to do that. Because currently there is a county local prescription drug monitoring program that St. Louis County started and that a lot of other jurisdictions have essentially joined. And I believe that doctors and pharmacists do have access to that data. I, I know that there had been some rumblings of lawsuits over this, which have not materialized. What do you, what do you think of having... A, a state one and kind of this county one going side by side. Do you think that could be good, bad? Well, it sounds like they're, I mean, my understanding, it kind of looks like they're completely different types right. of PDMP. They are, absolutely. And do you feel like this is, an, this is effective at dealing with the opioid or heroin epidemic? I don't think it is effective. Why? Um, and the reason why is we have 49 states that do this, and we're middle of the road when it comes to opioid deaths. And most of the opioid deaths is, a, is actually from heroin, not from prescription drugs. Um, obviously, what happens is people get addicted to prescription drugs and then they, they turn over to heroin. Um, but, the, you know, I think the underlying problem are people's addictive behaviors and just fixing the opioid problem um, or trying to fix it through monitoring it um, won't actually fix uh, people's actually uh, their addictive behaviors. And I asked this to the governor yesterday, and, I, and since Joe asked you about this on another type of drug, I want to ask you this too. One of the things that I've noticed about both the politician response to the opioid situation and also even the media coverage is it's being treated as a public health issue. Whereas in the 1980s, when let's say the crack epidemic was primarily affecting African-Americans, the, the public policy response was throwing a lot of those people in jail. We don't see this with the opioid situation where I'm not saying that everybody who's getting addicted to opioid and heroin are, are white, but a lot of them are. Have you noticed that too, that there has been this shift in thinking? Is it just a general shift in thought that maybe the way to control uh, the drug addiction problem is not throwing people in jail, but rehabilitation. Is it finally kind of an acknowledgement that what we did in the past just didn't work? I, I think I think there is some of that. I mean, even before 
the opioids, um, you have, you know, drug courts popping up and becoming more popular. And so there's been other avenues besides just throwing people in jail. Well, and there's also, I mean, uh, the part of the opioid issue, you know, has to deal with people who are legitimately on painkillers for uh, serious illnesses or they're dying. And, you know, there is some concern that if, I mean, I'm not taking sides on this, although I have personally seen this from a relative uh, where a person's dying and they're having more difficulty getting the drugs they need to make their, um, make them more comfortable. And yeah, because I think, of some I of think, the concern you know, maybe uh, some of the prescribing habits of some of the doctors, maybe doctors need to be educated. I think it used to be that um, you know, pharmaceutical companies that say, hey, these drugs aren't addictive, go ahead and prescribe them. And obviously we know that they are addictive. Yes. And, um, you know, it, I, I had a kidney stone in December and I got prescribed opioids. I probably needed them for three days, but I got like a 30-day supply. Um, so that could be part of the problem of how some people actually get addicted. Maybe a seven-day script it would make more sense. Um, but maybe maybe the doctors just don't w want to do that because then if the kidney stone's still there, I might have to go back and get more. It's more work for the doctor to go in and renew that. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. But, yeah, I mean, I think I mean there's various issues that, yeah. that it, come into play here. It, it's a vexing issue. Now, when I was interviewing Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard about two or three months ago, I asked him a pretty simple question. How do you think the legislature did this year when it came to dealing with St. Louis? And he kind of gave a short answer and then kind of went into this lengthy uh, analysis in his view. The county has all these municipalities and all these little bitty uh, uh, fiefdoms. That someday, guys like me for rural Missouri is going to say enough's enough. You guys are out of money. Keep passing taxes. I think that's not in the best interest of Missourians. We're going to have to start merging municipalities, fire districts, police districts, public safety, merge county and city, sell Lambert Field, take that two or three billion dollars, do infrastructure in the city, but you got to protect it because St. Louis will probably figure out a way to spend the money on a bunch of umbrellas and stuff the way they have had a history of spending money in the past. As I said in previous shows, when the president pro tem of the Missouri Senate makes a statement like that, you don't ignore it because although he doesn't have unlimited power, he has a decent amount of power to set the agenda. In the back of my mind, though, having studied the city-county merger, city-county unification issue for a long time, I know that there's a lot of opposition to all sorts of different ideas, whether it be the city joining St. Louis County as a municipality or whether it making a one big mega city between St. Louis and, and, and St. Louis County. I'm interested to hear your take on this because you represent a big portion of St. Louis County, particular part of St. Louis County that traditionally has opposed a city-county merger proposal. Yeah, I'm definitely against, there's no question, I'm 100% against city-county merger. It doesn't mean that the city and the county can't collaborate on, on different um, activities like they did on the crime lab, but I believe they saved a substantial amount of money by having one crime lab. They don't. We don't need a city-county merger for that to actually take place. They can do that on their own. Um, and, the, you know, the, this notion that it's, it's only a problem in St. Louis um, I would say, you know, of, of small uh, government entities um, is false. We have 114 counties across this state, um, I believe. And we have counties that have less than 5,000 people, I believe. So, you know, if you hit, we hit, St. Louis County has almost a million people in it. And St. Louis City has, uh, you know, 
give or take 300,000-ish. Um, so these aren't small entities, um, and but you do have that across the state. How many cities do you represent in your district? Like 15, 16, 17? Yeah. Would you say that, I don't know if you've talked with any of the mayors or council people, but are they opposed to any type of city-county merger from what you've what you've? Yeah, gathered? most of them are opposed. It, have they given you a reason why in particular? Are they fearful it's going to be the second option where they get rid of all the cities and make one big city out of the two entities, essentially? I'm, I, there probably is some fear of that. I mean, every, everybody's trying to protect their turf. Yeah. It, now, have you thought, I mean, this goes back to the 80s when there was this um, big commission, and actually Jim McNary, who was, who was Republican, with then county executive, was pushing for some of it, and they were trying to combine some of the small communities. I mean, St. Louis County has about 90 municipalities. So the idea was to try to combine them into, let's say, 30. They were talking about doing this. This is 30 years ago. There isn't 30 now, so obviously that didn't work. Uh, it was very contentious at the time. Do you, I mean, looking at this now, because many people see you as among the lawmakers who will probably be around for a while in various offices possibly, do you have any thoughts about what can be done in St. Louis County, or do you think things are okay that people have the local government they want? I'm just interested in your thoughts. Well, I mean, I... There, you know, you can make a strong argument that 90 municipalities in a, you know, in one county is probably too many. Um, you know, doing, I'm in construction, and every time I do a construction project, I have to call and see what the regulations are. Um, when I'm doing a roof, you know, it's different. You know, Arnold is different from town and country. Town and country is different than Wildwood, and there's no there's no question that does place some some undue burdens um, on the you know, on on businesses. I think the question, though, is if there are too many governments, who should be in control of consolidating them? Should it be the cities themselves? Like, for example, Benita Terrace and Benita Park, I think. I, I might be getting the names wrong. They just voluntarily decided to merge. Right. The legislature didn't say you two have to merge. I would assume, though, that you would prefer that be decided on a very local level with the citizens of the cities rather than the legislature saying, all these cities are going to be merged, like like Senator Richard said. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's probably fair to say. Now, if there is a proposal that comes into the Senate next year that either that in some ways merges the city and county or whatever I've talked about, what do you think the reception is going to be among people like you and also some Democratic colleagues that may also have questions about it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a few of my colleagues that would probably be opposed to it. I, you know, there's someone out in Pike County or you know how they how are they going to respond to it? It's it's I'm not totally sure. Because yeah, that's the reason why I think it's so important, and I know this is kind of an insular point, but there is a belief that if you put this proposal on the statewide ballot, it would be easier to pass because somebody in Pike County or Nottaway County, they don't really care about it, and they might vote yes. We saw that with the local control debate, I think a couple of years ago. Although I did think that passed in St. Louis City. Uh, Mike, I guess your preference would be if there is a proposal, city and county voters vote on it only, not statewide. Right. Thank you very much for joining with us today and talking about next week's special session, which I will be at and I will be covering wall to wall. Quick final question. How long do you think the special session this final week will last? I believe it will be two days. Two days. That's why I booked a hotel until Thursday, but I might be going back a little bit earlier. Until then, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how could people follow you on Twitter or anywhere else uh, in the world? Koenig for Missouri.
We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>